when we humble ourselves before God, we can be the worst of sinners, but we can still be people after God's own heart. And God can still bless us. God can still use us to do great things for him, even though we are horrible, horrible, horrible sinners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to not only better understand them individually, but also to better understand how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, we have a lot of biblical ground to cover as we're set to tackle First and Second Samuel at the same time. And to help us make sense of it all, we welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Ward. Jonathan serves as the Associate Professor of Bible and Theology at the Owen Sound Campus of the Word of Life Bible Institute right here in Ontario. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for helping us out. Hey, great to be here. Excited. Why don't we start in just a really simple way and allow you to situate us. When we come to First and Second Samuel, where do we find ourselves in the story of Scripture? All right. Well, if you're ready for this, I do. I teach Bible survey. So let's start at Genesis. So the book of Genesis gives us four events and four people. So the four events in Genesis 1 to 11 are the creation of the world where God builds everything up. The fall in Genesis 3, we have then the flood of judgment. And then we have the dispersion at Babel where languages are confused and people are finally spread out as God had told them to. The four people in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, even though he's not the son of promise, he is a major character. Through those characters, we see God's promises of land, seed, and blessing for the Jewish people. And so at the end of the book of Genesis, the people are now in, in Egypt. And so in the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses to take his people through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to receive the law and build the tabernacle. And so we've covered 90 chapters in scripture so far. Leviticus is the worship manual for the priests given at Mount Sinai. The book of Numbers talks about the faithless generation that dies out in the wilderness. A faithful generation is raised up to conquer the land. Deuteronomy is given to them as a second law, as a reestablishment of the covenant given at Sinai. In the book of Joshua, God raises up another leader. He takes the people through the Jordan River to a central northern and southern military campaign to divide up the land among the tribes. And so now we have the tribes living in the promised land. And then the book of Judges happens. And when I say the book of Judges, my students say messed up because Judges is absolutely messed up. And the, the, the thing in Judges is that everyone is doing that, which is right in their own eyes. And it's a mess. It is a real mess. And then we have this shining light of the book of Ruth, this love story that sets the stage for the king that God is preparing for the time period where we enter. And so at the end of the book of Judges, the time of the Judges, morally things are messed up. The people live in sin. God sends an oppressor. They cry out to God. He rescues them through a judge. And then it continues over and over again. Seven times this happens in the book of Judges. And so at the end of this time of the Judges, the people have had enough. And they begin to cry out, we want a king just like the rest of the nations. And that's in a sense where we find ourselves. So this, these books are named after Samuel, who's kind of the last judge in this time period. And uh, he's going to shift to a new role during this time as well. But I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. So that that's where we find ourselves here in the books of Samuel. That's a helpful review. And you've taken us right up to the doorstep of Samuel. And so now as we come to First and Second Samuel, which 
is 55 chapters. So like I said at the beginning, a huge amount of biblical real estate here. But I'm wondering before we get into the weeds of those two books, if you can give us an aerial view of the text, kind of an outline to get our hands around the whole. Sure. Well, the books of Samuel start with, of course, Samuel. And so for the first eight chapters of what we call uh, 1 Samuel, you basically have the rise of Samuel and who he is. And then the people are coming to Samuel and they want a king. And so he gives them a king like the rest of the nation. So from chapters 9 to 31 of 1 Samuel, we have Saul and his rise and fall as the first king of Israel. And then we turn to 2 Samuel, and 2 Samuel is basically all about David. But just like Saul, we kind of have his rise and fall. And that's just the way the, the, the writer told the story is this rise and fall of the first king and then the second king, and then the contrast and differences between the two. But in 2 Samuel, we have chapters 1 to 10, David's triumphs and the good stuff that happens. And then our hinge is chapter 11, where David sins with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered, covers it up and all of that. And then we have David's troubles to the end of the book to chapter 24. So we'll get to Saul and David in a moment here, these two contrasting kings. But you mentioned Samuel at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can give us a thumbnail sketch of that title character. Uh, what role did he play? Why is he significant? And what can we learn from his life and ministry in those early chapters of these two books? Yeah, Samuel is... Um, he's pretty much the last judge and he's going to become the first great prophet in Israel. So in the time of the judges, God raises up these judges to be the religious and well, primarily the political leader who's going to rally an army in one or multiple of the tribes and then chase off the oppressors and rescue God's people. Sometimes they're good religious examples as well. And they're leading the people to God. Other times, you know, they're just militaristic and, and political, uh, like a character like Sam, uh, Samson, who is not leading spiritual. And even Gideon, who does great military things spiritually, he, you know, he's he's not your guy as he, he worships false idols and is greedy and things like that. So um, Samuel is that last judge who is setting an example for the people and helping to lead the people. But then when they want a king, so he, he is the one to anoint the king for God, and he stands between God and the people. But now we have the king in place, and he's going to become the prophet that is going to hear from God and take those words to the king. And if the king's not listening, he's going to take those words to the people, and he's going to now be the mediator with God and the king and the people. And that's now the role of the prophet, because now we have this political entity that's in place, a king, just like the rest of the nations. And so that's kind of the, the transition in Samuel's life as he moves from a judge to becoming a prophet. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and you've already kind of mentioned this and alluded to this, Israel demands a king. They look mm -hmm. around them at all these nations and they say to God, give us a human king. What's significant about this request? It seems fairly harmless at first glance. What's significant about this? How did they end up with Saul as their first monarch? And what can we learn from this national misstep, we could probably call it? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what it looks like. The people are crying out for a king and notice how they cry out. We want a king just like the rest of the nations. We're tired of these nations coming up and oppressing us. We want someone who is going to be strong and mighty and lead us against them and organize us and be the person that we can look to because we can't see God and 
you know, we're done with God being in charge. We want a physical king that we can see and he'll lead us. And, you know, we can think about it as a misstep. But what I find really interesting is that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So remember, we said Deuteronomy is like the second law. The, the first generation coming out of Egypt were at Mount Sinai. They received the tablets and all of the instructions that Ma Moses brought down from the mountain in the book of Exodus. A lot of those things are repeated in Leviticus, in Numbers. And now we have Deuteronomy written to the second generation that went with Joshua into the land to conquer the land. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 17, in verse 14, it says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And then God says, you may indeed set a king over you. And then God gives four rules that he wants the kings to follow. And I, I use W's for those because God wanted the king to remember the word of God and then not to multiply women, weapons, or wives, weapons, and wealth. And, you know, that story is going to continue later. And we're going to see David mess with those things. And then Solomon go crazy on those things as you look at first and second Kings. So God already had a plan for a king. And God already knew they were going to ask for a king, just like the rest of the nations. But the thing here is timing. We looked at the time of the judges. And remember, we said we had a story of a shining light in the midst of the messed up time of judges. We have this beautiful book of Ruth. And it seems like it's just a love story between Ruth and Boaz, this Moabite woman who comes into the family of faith and, and she's redeemed and becomes an outsider in Israel who is who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and worships the Lord. And then she marries this great faithful man named Boaz, and then they start to have kids. Uh, but one of those grand, great grandkids is David. And he is, he's going to be the greatest king that Israel has. So God has a plan, but at the end of the time of the judges, people kind of jump the gun. They're not patiently waiting on the king that God is preparing. They want a king right now just like the rest of the nations. And that's, you know, Samuel is ticked off about it. He's angry with the people because they're like, God's your king. You don't need a king. Let God rule. Just obey him. And God says, no, if they want a king, you, you give them what they ask for. And here's the guy that they want. Mm -hmm. And God gives them what they want. And that's Saul. He comes from a major family, from uh, a renowned tribe in Benjamin He's the tallest in the kingdom. So here is this big strapping guy who stands head and shoulders above everyone. And he has the looks. He has the appearance. He is commanding. And he's a king just like the rest of the nations. Big, strong, wealthy. He's the guy. But the problem is, uh, and this is where we have that great passage, uh, you know, that God is going to look, well, when we get to David, God's going to look at the heart, not on the outward appearance. But here's Saul, outwardly, he looked, he's the guy. He, he looks like the other kings. He's, he's big, tall, respectable, and he, he's a king just like the rest of the nations. And so, in a sense, God gives them what they want and what they're asking for, even though, and I know his sovereignty of God and everything, God knew this was coming, you know, this was God's plan. But had they just waited, they could have started with the best king, but they didn't. They wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, and they did pay a price for it. There were battles lost. There was disobedience and consequence. And, and, and Saul isn't a good king. He's just not. 
it's amazing every time through scripture i mean we're only a number of books into the bible but every time mm -hmm. humanity decides to do things their own way and sidestep even a little bit god's plan chaos always ensues you just yeah. went through the judges and saying everyone did what was right in their own eyes didn't end so well yeah in the garden didn't end so well over yeah. and over again, the wandering in the wilderness didn't end so well like all of these yeah. missteps by god's people and here like you rightly said it's helpful to highlight that the asking for the king or wanting a king was not in and of itself wrong. Mm -hmm. It was the timing and not waiting of the Lord. Yeah. Well, we go to first, second Samuel, and there are so many amazing stories recorded in these two books, memorable stories that make the church flannel graph in Sunday school. You know, they're pretty memorable. Yes. We got David's anointing, David and Goliath, David and Jonathan, David and Saul, David's growing fame and his eventual enthronement, the unification of the kingdom, the plans to build the temple, David's sin and repentance, which you already mentioned. I'm wondering if you can pick one of them, one or two of them that have been your favorites and why. I know that's a tall task, but maybe a couple of stories that stand out to you. My number one, I love Jonathan as a character. I mean, he's got a great name to start with, but he is just such an amazing character. Here is the son of Saul, the king, and Saul wants a dynasty. He wants Jonathan to reign on the throne after him. But because of Saul's disobedience, the kingdom is going to be stripped from him and given to David. And Saul knows this, and Jonathan knows this, but Jonathan and David are such good friends, and they love each other, and they love the Lord, that Jonathan is willing to give up the throne to follow God, and then to honor his friend David and protect his friend David. And so, to me, Jonathan is just this incredible character. And my absolute favorite story of Jonathan is when he defeats the Philistines. And so, he's on campaign with his dad. And uh, they're kind of hiding from the Philistines. They're gathering their army. And Jonathan is sitting around in a division apart from his dad. And he just decides, you know what? What's this sitting around? Let's get something done. God can save by a few or save by many. So he says to his armor bearer, let's go show ourselves to the Philistines. If they say this, you know, we'll just stand our ground and wait for them. But if they say this, then we'll attack and God gives us the battle. And so he, he and, the armor, and the armor bearer shows you his character too. He's like, whatever God's given you to do, I'm with you, buddy. And so they go over the hill, they, they show themselves. And then Jonathan just starts throwing down and he just, he knocks guys down. His armor bearer just comes behind them, killing the guys behind him. And by the end of the day, Jonathan's hand is stuck to his sword. He can't let go. He, he's been fighting so hard. And I mean, I would love to see an action movie made of, of that battle scene, because I think that would outdo anything, uh, you know, any other movie that people could produce. But it's uh, I just love that story. Just his faith. You know, God can do this. We can take on this whole army, tens of thousands of people. Let's just go do this because God's able. So he's one of those characters that kind of is in the background, but his faith, loyalty, mm. it's just, it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, he's my favorite. And uh, just, I wish I had that, that kind of courage, you know, kind of to live up mm. to my name like his and, and just have that faith and courage and loyalty. In first Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, David is famously called a man after God's own heart. In fact, God himself says that, calls him that. Mm -hmm. You've already mentioned the downfall of David in the second half of 2 Samuel, beginning with the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and just the spiral out of control that happens then. Mm -hmm. Help us to reconcile those two things. God's saying, this is a man after my own heart, and yet he sins grievously. So what does this mean? Obviously, God doesn't sin like that. So what does this mean? It comes down to the heart. 
the Bible project has some great videos. I like how they handle first and second Samuel in their overview videos. And they really highlight Hannah's song, Hannah's prayer at the beginning of these books. And one of the major themes that she thinks about sings about is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when you look at David's life, I think David learned from Joshua. What were Joshua's two missteps in the book of Joshua? He Twice, he failed to consult God before they went up to Ai. They were sitting in the camp. And then with the Gibeonites, you know, they were lying. They were deceiving. And he didn't consult God. But what do you notice? Every time David goes to battle, he seeks God. And then he's willing to obey. And that heart of humility, he's a great warrior. He is a great military strategist. He's killed tens of thousands, as people sing about, so much greater than Saul. You know, he had the military capability to do great things, even on his own. But you constantly see him humbling himself before God and consulting God for his job, for, you know, for his military role. Then you just see his humble heart and his songs. You see his, his humility and yet boldness and trust in God in slaying Goliath. Uh, and then even when he sins with Bathsheba and all of that sin, which is, you know, some would say, you know, he breaks all the Ten Commandments in one chapter of the Bible. And yet he's still considered a man after God's own heart. How is that possible? Well, when he's confronted, he falls before God and says, you know, against you only have I sinned. I tend to think he sinned against Bathsheba's family, against Uriah having him murdered, against his own general for having him do those things, then for his staff for covering it up. But he just recognizes before God that that's where his sin falls and alone before God is, is how he's sin. And that, that humble heart before God is what erases all of our sin, confessing our sin to God, recognizing we've sinned against him. God looks at that and says, okay, it's covered. And, uh, but the proud heart that says like Saul and the contrast here that offers sacrifice when Samuel doesn't show up, even though he's the wrong person doing the wrong, I mean, he's doing the right thing, consulting God, but he's doing it the wrong way because he's the wrong person to do it. And then he's not humble about it. Samuel confronts him and he's like, uh, the people were getting restless. So I had to do this. I, you know, they made me do it when he was supposed to kill all of the animals of the Amalekites and he saves them. And Samuel shows up and says, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And Saul says, oh, the people they wanted this stuff because we're going to sacrifice it to God. And so he's always passing the blame and his proud heart won't let him humble himself before God. And I think that's the difference. And so God is, so David is a man after God's own heart in that he's humble and he's merciful. And he just, he lives that quorum day where he lives before God and he humbles himself before God, even as this bold warrior. And I think that's the difference. Would you say it also shows up in his conflict with Saul leading up to the throne oh, and sure. how he runs from Saul, is merciful towards Saul and that interaction? Yeah. Well, and in sparing Saul's life. Now, I also think there's there's more political motivation in that as well. He's teaching his men, you will not lift up your hand against God's anointed because I'm also one of God's anointed. So when I get to the throne, I don't want you thinking about taking me out. So I, <laughs> I don't hear a lot of people talking about that aspect. I think that's there as well. But he does. He has this respect that God put this guy here. And if God wants to move him, God can do it. Mm. And uh, I remember as a kid, uh, 
as a young kid, I was a part of a church that split and, you know, things were from the stories I've heard, things were pretty ugly for a time. And one of the earliest sermons I remember my pastor preaching after that whole thing happened was you don't push your pastor out. You pray your pastor out. Mm. I thought of that, you know, much later, even as I'm studying this narrative and recognizing David had the same philosophy is he could have taken Saul out. He had the support in the kingdom. He had the people that could get it done and God delivered him into his hands multiple times. He could have just killed him. And Saul was not a good King. People would have forgiven him and, and David could have had the kingdom like that. But again, he, he trusts God and recognizes God put him there. God can take him out in his time. And, and obviously God did. Mm-hmm. So it was that humble heart before God. Once again, now you're a, among other things, a Bible survey teacher at the word of life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to ask you to trace a couple of themes forward into the new Testament. And then even into the end end times into the eschaton, we have these themes through first and second Samuel of kingdom and King. Mm-hmm. as well as Lord's anointed that comes out. That sounds very new Testament as well. Maybe themes like that. How do those shoot forward past first and second Samuel and how do we pick up on them even today? Yeah. Well, the idea of the anointed, the Messiah, that anointing it's used for the first time here in first Samuel chapter two. And I believe it's verse 10 as, uh, but the Messiah, yeah. In Hannah's prayer in verse 10, The adversary of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that, of course, is the term Messiah that we're more familiar with. But this is the first time that we see it in scripture. And then you have that theme. Samuel anoints Saul because the people want a king like the rest of the nation. Samuel anoints David because he's God's choice, not man's choice. And then you have the promises given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant, um, saying that his, you know, he is now the line of that Messiah. He will have one of his descendants on his throne in Jerusalem forever. And we see that, of course, played out into, uh, into the book of Revelation when Jesus is on his throne in the kingdom. Hmm. So we are still awaiting the fulfillment of that 2 Samuel chapter 7 covenant that God makes with David in his house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is what I wrestle with because you have many people saying, oh yeah, well, Messiah, you know, the king from David's line on David's throne. Yeah, but David's throne is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. But when you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, it seems very clear that we're talking about like a physical chair in Jerusalem. And I struggle with those that would say, you know, that David, Jesus dies and rises again. He goes to, to uh, Abraham's bosom, leading captivity captive. David is now able to be in the presence of the Lord, God in heaven. And God says, here's your throne. And David's saying, what do you mean? I mean, my throne was in Jerusalem. You promised me Jerusalem. My seat in Jerusalem reigning in, in Israel. That's That's how he understood the promise. And so, we have to be very careful, you know, being so enlightened now that we then take our theology and put it back on what David would have understood. David would have understood his throne in Jerusalem. That's what was established in Zion. And so I, I kind of struggle with that, with those that would just change that meaning of David's throne, because again, the Davidic covenant seems very clear. It will be his son forever, 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 numerous times in that passage on his throne in Jerusalem. And it seems after the time of silence, 
when John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This Davidic king is coming. He's mm -hmm. near, he's close. And Jesus comes yep. and says, hey, here I am. You want it? Let's get this show on the road. And they end up rejecting it. But it's interesting to me when you come to the beginning of Acts and he's just about to ascend. This is after the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord. He's about to ascend. He teaches them that 40 day seminar on the kingdom. And their question is, is it now? that you're going to bring the kingdom yeah. to Israel. We're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So even they understood that mm -hmm. it was going to be an earthly, like you said, a chair in Jerusalem. And so it doesn't seem yeah. that it makes sense for us to anticipate anything other than what they anticipated. And that in Acts chapter one, there couldn't have been a better time if they were, you know, if they had misunderstood this thing, if they missed out that, and Jesus was going to the chair in heaven seated at the right hand. And that was David's throne. And that's the, the you know, the, the kingdom is now spiritual. That was the time to correct them to say, no, 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 no. The, the kingdom is spiritual. You were going to bring in this kingdom by leading people to me. And that was the opportunity to correct their thinking that this is not a physical kingdom on earth. And yet Jesus doesn't correct them in that moment, which again, leads us to, to understand that, you know, we haven't seen it yet. And the, the Old Testament prophecies that are very specific, when I start teaching the Old Testament to students, I ask them to consider two questions. Does God say what he means? And does God keep his promises? You know, is it understandable what God says? And if so, and does God keep his promises? Those promises throughout the Old Testament of a physical kingdom, the people returning to the land. And even in that, some of those land promises are given after the exile when they've come back to the land and they don't have a king on the throne. There's still prophecy that a king will return. He will build a temple. They will be in the land to overflowing. And so even the late prophets say the same things. And yet we haven't seen that happen yet. And so God's still going to keep those promises to Israel. Going to the end of 2 Samuel, after David's sin and then his subsequent repentance, and he comes before the Lord totally repentant. Nathan calls him to that repentance, like the man of God that he is. Mm -hmm. There's still fallout from that decision. And the kingdom in many ways does not recover after that. I wonder if you can say a word about how there is restoration for those who sin. David was restored in his rela relationship with the Lord in his repentance. And yet there are still physical consequences for sin that couldn't be put back in the box. Yeah, for sure. And, and the narrator very carefully crafts that, you know, by in what is our second Samuel showing David's triumphs, his sin, and then his troubles. The reality is David had troubles before his sin with Bathsheba and David had triumphs after his sin with Bathsheba. But the author shows us very carefully that there is this consequence. Mm -hmm. We have one of David's sons raping his stepsister and then the brother of that stepsister murdering that son, Absalom killing Amnon. Absalom then goes on to flee to, to grandpa's place. And grandpa, of course, is the king of another country, tribe. And, you know, so he's got this idea, I'm going to be king. And then Absalom rebels. And so you have all of this consequence, but you also have this, David is gathering wealth. Now he's doing it for the temple, but he's gathering wealth. David, in the years when he's on the run, he begins to gather wives to himself. And, you know, those sins are going to be passed on to Solomon. And Solomon, in his days, wealth is going to be like, like silver is going to be like gravel. It's just not going to be worth anything. He's going to be the, the richest and wisest man to live. But that wisdom doesn't apply to those warnings from Deuteronomy 17. 
and he's going to multiply wives like crazy. He's going to have chariot cities and horses and, and all of the things he's not supposed to do. And so that begins a downfall to the point where Jeremiah says of one of those late kings of Judah that um, the king of Judah, you know, and that promise to David, like a signet ring, you're going to be taken off my finger and you're going into exile. And that king does. But then we have the restoration of that promise in the book of Haggai when Haggai is replaced on God's finger as the signet you know, and whether he's going to be the treasurer in the kingdom to come or not depends on how literal that prophecy is or whether it's just this picture of God removing a son of David and then replacing a son of David and restoring that promise. We have yet to see, but yeah, there's, there's consequence. And yet there is also that restoration and forgiveness. God takes the son of David off the throne and takes him into exile, but Zerubbabel, as the descendant of David comes back in the exile, God provides for him. God is going to use pagan nations to return the people to the land, to pay for the rebuilding of the temple uh, years later, to pay for the rebuilding of the walls and perfectly set the stage for Messiah that is to come. Yeah, so God is faithful. And uh, even though those promises to David are forever, it didn't mean consecutively forever too. There are times when a son of David is not on the throne we had that during the exile and even to today. And we, we await the full fulfillment of that when Jesus is on his throne in Jerusalem. We spent a lot of time discussing David and rightly so. He's a significant major character of these mm -hmm. two books. But there are many other minor characters as well. And we've mentioned a few of them. For example, Samuel's mother, Hannah, we've talked about mm -hmm. briefly. Eli the priest, we haven't mentioned. Jonathan, uh, your namesake, uh, your your favorite, the heir that befriended the competition, we could call it. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, we've got yeah. Abigail, Mephibosheth, Nathan, Absalom. I wonder if you could grab one of these minor characters, maybe not Jonathan, you've already talked about him, but one of these minor characters and explain how their involvement in these books is used by God to further his plans and purposes uh, in First and Second Samuel. Yeah, I took your question. I, I turned it a little bit. Instead of discussing one person, I was thinking about another sub theme that kind of runs through these books and we see multiple people, uh, you know, in this, this train of thought in the author. And that was the boldness in declaring God's word hmm. and Samuel as a child, Hannah prays for him. She's childless. She gets this child and then she leaves him after he's weaned at the temple to serve God. And he is dedicated to God. Samuel then hears from God and people don't hear from God in this time of the judges. It just because they're living in sin and doing what they want. And Eli trains David then to hear from God. He, Samuel begins to hear this voice calling to him. Eli then perceives this is God. You need to listen. This is what you say, you know, speak Lord, your servant hears. Samuel as a child is then given prophetic words of judgment against Eli and his family because Eli did not dis properly discipline his sons who were messing around with women at the gate as high priests and corrupting the offerings and everything else. And Samuel as a little boy, I mean, put yourself in that situation. You have to go to your boss and tell him his family is done as high priest and God is going to change the line of the high priest. That that doesn't happen for a number of years, but as a young boy, that's that's a challenging thought. And yet, you know, Eli also trains him. You got to speak God's word, and don't you dare hold it from me, or God will give you the curses there. 
And so Samuel's a little boy speaks boldly for God in a very intimidating situation. I also thought about Samuel confronting the people about their sin and their desire for a king. Samuel anointing uh, Saul and then bringing the words of rejection to Saul. I mean, Saul's not a stable guy to start with. And then Samuel has to go and tell him, God's going to tear the kingdom away from you. Just like you're tearing my robe kind of thing. Those are challenging things. And then I, I was thinking of, uh, you know, even just Samuel anointing David and the danger he was potentially putting himself in, in doing that to later another character, Nathan, Nathan confronting David about his sin. David's a really powerful man. And yeah, we know he's gracious and merciful in a lot of ways, but he's also a man of war and he's the king. And I got to go tell him he's a sinner. He's very careful how he does that, but he boldly speaks for God. And then later, you know, he says to David, yeah, go ahead and build the kingdom, do it there, build the temple, whatever's in your heart. And then God tells him, no, 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 David's not the guy. And he has to go back to David. And so I think for those who speak for God, you know, there's this sub theme of their boldness in, in spite of what may be perceived personal consequence, they're going to speak for God anyway. And God uses these men to move these Kings to repentance or, you know, to, to do God's will. Even, you know, and I think of my own life, do I speak for God when I should? And when God, when the spirit is really laying on my heart that I have to go and confront someone about something, or I, I have to speak up when I see an issue or, or something like that. Am I that bold or, you know, do I cower before those social consequence or whatever they may be? So I took note of that, that there's a number of these characters, Samuel and Nathan in particular, speak for God, even when it's not convenient for them. And reminding us of, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 4, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, you know, preach the word. It's a great theme, an important theme to note. For sure. What would you say is the main thrust of these two books as we look at them as a whole? Why are they important why would God preserve them for us? Aside from just the history of Israel, but what all scriptures God breathed and, and useful. So how is yeah. this so for these two books? I, I think, as we mentioned before, that theme of God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I mean, we see that contrasted so clearly in the life of Saul versus David. When we humble ourselves before God, we can be the worst of sinners, but we can still be people after God's own heart. And God can still bless us. God can still use us to do great things for him, even though we are horrible, horrible, horrible sinners. Whereas in the life of Saul, we see that in David. In the life of Saul, when we never, when we refuse to admit our sin, we refuse to confess our sins before God, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we say we have no sin and call God a liar, like we see in 1 John chapter 1. You know, we see that exemplified in the life of Saul. It was always someone else's problem. It's always someone else's fault. God's just not giving me what I want. And God's not good enough for me. And God's not powerful enough to do what we need. And so that I think is the key is humbling ourselves before God. And then the other thing I think is really clear in the choice between Saul and David is be careful what you ask God for. Sometimes we get so convinced that we need this or we need the church to do this, or, you know, we need to spend money in this area or that area, whether it's personally or for ministry or whatever, you know, 
I think we have to be, be careful what we ask God for, because sometimes if we want something bad enough and we pray hard enough, God will give us what we ask for, but it, you know, he'll use it for our best and his glory. But if we were just patient, things could work out better. Mm. <laughs> and I think we see that in Saul versus David. Saul was man's choice, not God's choice. David was God's choice, not man's choice. And that's so be careful what we ask God for and humble ourselves before the Lord. That's good. On a more personal level, you know, during your years of study and teaching through this book of the Bible, how has God used first and second Samuel specifically in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness to move you toward Christ likeness, which is always the goal for us. How has sure. God used this book specifically? Well, I remember back to those flannel graphs um, and this story of Samuel when he was a little boy dedicated to God, to serve God. And I remember that tugging at my heartstrings, having no idea that I was going to become, you know, a missionary teacher for the Lord. And um, in that, as I mentioned before, his, his boldness to speak for God, to hear, to, to have the privilege of hearing from God, and then to be able to speak for God, even in very intimidating situations. You know, I remember that tugging at my heartstrings, even as a little boy and looking back now, I had no idea why, but I can see that, you know, coming into my life that God has called me to a ministry very much like Samuel in that sense. And um, I, I guess in my adult life, it has just been the leadership lessons and the contrast between Saul and David doing things the right way, the way that God prescribes. We see that both in Saul and David's life, Saul offering sacrifice when he shouldn't have. David fell for the same thing. David bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant was a good idea, you know, so that it could be in the capital city and everybody could be drawn together. But the first time he tried, Uzzah strikes out as, you know, it was the wrong people carrying the Ark in the wrong way. They were doing the right thing, but it was the wrong people in, in the wrong method. and you know, Uzzah died for it. God and David had a little disagreement there. And then later David does the research and says, oh, right. The Levites are supposed to carry it on sticks made of this wood. And, and then they do it the right way. And it's a great celebration. So just those lessons from the lives of those two leaders, there's just, there's so much there. It's hard to even think about, but leadership lessons and contrasting those two approaches to leadership and, uh, uh, Samuel's call and faithfulness, even as a child through a, his age, just declaring the word of God is, has kind of been powerful for me. It seems like sometimes we confuse the means and the ends when serving the Lord. And, mm. and we forget that God really cares about the means. We're very pragmatic, I think, mm. as a culture and, and to our core. And we just think, well, God here wants us at this end. So whatever means we can use to get there, it will please him. And yeah. we see throughout scripture that God actually cares about the way we go about doing these things. And sure. it seems certainly exemplified in first and second Samuel with the contrast between Saul and, and David, like you've highlighted. Oh, for sure. And we can, you know, I don't disagree with the statement. The message never changes, but our methods do. At the same time, though, those methods have to be bound to the word of God and the principles that God's already revealed. Mm -hmm. You know, working with young people a, a lot, you know, the illustration often is that idea of missionary dating. You know, dating someone who is an unbeliever in, you know, and using that as a method to bring them to the Lord. Now, God can use our sin 
and our disobedience, you know, to lead someone like that to the Lord. But at the same time, if, if dating is supposed to be leading towards marriage, you know, we're, we're not supposed to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, you know, so yeah, can God be, God will be glorified through it, whatever happens, but there can be consequences for us too. And I'm sure as a pastor, you've seen that as well. Things that started that way, professions of faith that seemed like they happened sometimes just to get the girl or to get the guy. And then a person isn't a genuine believer. And then you end up with an unequally yoked marriage that becomes very difficult for a godly person to raise a family in. Yeah, compromise always leads to either discipline or some sort of negative consequences. And we saw that in the life of David, as we talked about, those consequences went on for generations. It continued on even into exile, into Babylon. Uh, When Mm -hmm. we think we are doing God a favor by rethinking his strategy for him, uh, we need to probably think again. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's the importance too, of knowing the word of God, being in the word of God. And I hope for those of you watching um, or listening to this uh, podcast too, that this isn't just going to be about hearing from Pastor Boyd. You know, he's a great teacher. He loves the Lord. He loves the word. But for each one of us, we need to be in the Bible for ourselves. And I think that's a challenge in Canada. Some of the statistics about Bible engagement in Canada, I think it was a study that goes back to 2013. Honestly, it's kind of horrific. We would be last census. I'm waiting for the latest, but the last census was like 70% would call themselves Christian in Canada. And yet it's only like 18% in Canada that would, you know, consider the Bible as infallible or, you know, would, would believe in moral rights and wrongs and, you know, really foundational stuff to the word of God. So I hope for you that, you know, you're getting yourself into the Bible, into the word of God, doing, you know, devotions. We'd love to say daily Bible reading and things, but even a few times a week, just get yourself into the word of God and and feed yourself. You know, if we only eat once a week uh, physically, that's not healthy. And I think spiritually, there's that same parallel. If we're not, you know, if the only time we're being fed the word of God is when, our pastor is, you know, kind of spoon feeding what he's already chewed up and digested for us in a week, you know, we're not going to be super spiritually healthy. And so I I want to challenge you to get yourself into the word and just love the scriptures. Hopefully we've shown, I mean, we just scratched the surface here in these two incredible books. There's so much because there's so many stories. Um, But yeah, just fall in love with the word and just love these stories. They're just so relevant for today. Hopefully we've shown that at least a little bit. Well, amen. Thanks again, Jonathan, for giving us your time and expertise in these two books. We covered a lot of ground, but I pray that we did it (laughs) justice. And that again, we excited the interest in, in our listeners as well. So thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.